Hello, hello, hello. It's Coin Talk. I'm Aaron Lammer. Great guest this week. Uh, we receive many pitches for this show. This is a uh, secret uh, I can let the listeners in on. Uh, there's a lot of publicists uh, trying to push CEOs onto podcasts and crypto. No shockers there. 99.99% of these pitches are uninteresting to me insofar as I don't really like to talk about the deep technological code implications of crypto. However, uh, I got a pitch this week that was much closer to my interest set um, about a uh, project called Audius that is trying to create a uh, sort of a, a decentralized sound cloud, I guess is how I think. The CEO, Raniel, described it, so I uh, invited him on to talk about it. Uh, Jay's on vacation. He will be back shortly. We are brought to you by Medium. Medium has so much great writing about crypto. You should become a member. It's five bucks a month. It supports writers. It supports this show. Let's hear that music. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Tuesday, July 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $10,484. Hello! Welcome to Coin Talk. Guest here, we've got Roniel from Audius. Welcome. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm going to be totally honest, Roniel. This, is, this show is all about uh, Bitcoin honesty. Uh, I get about 100 pitches a week, 99% of which I delete immediately. Not because I don't think people are doing interesting stuff, but because I don't think they're doing stuff that I have any particular like insight into or connect with. Um, but you uh, run a, uh, would you say a blockchain startup? What are we calling these? A crypto startup? Yeah, I would say decentralized technology startup. I, I don't know what. <laughs> a decentralized technology startup in the music space, yep. which I'm in a, uh, in a, a musical project and publish music. So this is an area that's of particular interest to me and that I followed pretty closely, I guess, from, I feel like uh, Imogen Heap was selling music on, on the Ethereum network. Was that kind of the first big crypto music story? Yeah, I think so. And then there was Ujo, which was Consensus's project. And then there have been a number of other folks going after different parts of is, this as well. Is Ujo defunct? You sounded like uh, you, you sounded like past tense when you said that. <laughs> I, I didn't mean for it to come off that way. I, I know the folks there okay. pretty well. So I, I think consensus is having a bit of issues uh, you know that are that are well reported and well known, right? And I, I think that's making it a bit harder for them too. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole nother story that I'd love to get into with you about what happens when these sort of nascent businesses are exposed to the volatile market uh, dynamics of something like Ethereum. Like, I wonder how much of Ujo's fate was sealed by the price of Ethereum more so than their own product. But for you in doing Audius, give me the, uh, you're sitting next to someone on the plane, but maybe that person has a little bit of Bitcoin. How do you describe what you do? Yeah, sure. So we help artists connect directly with their fans and distribute music to them. It just so happens that crypto is the best way for us to do that. But we really see ourselves solving this problem that right now content creators don't have a way to build a direct relationship with their fans, own that relationship, and distribute whatever they want on whatever terms they want. Uh, so what that looks like more in practice, the audience product looks and feels very similar to SoundCloud or Spotify or other music players that you're familiar with but it's running on fully decentralized rails. So what we've created is a community of artists, listeners, and service and infrastructure providers working together to provide this sort of traditional end user experience that, that people have come to expect. Yeah, uh, uh, sort of okay. in a nutshell. Okay, yeah. so I'm a Spotify customer. I'm not sure I'm like proud of it, but like feels like a, like a necessary evil for someone who listens to a lot of music right now. And I have to say for all of my like quibbles, I'm like reasonably happy with their product. And I also, I guess I'm on like both ends of the Spotify equation because I'm both uh, submitting to the Spotify content library and I'm simultaneously a Spotify customer. So 
I guess I'm curious from both of those perspectives, from the creator perspective and from the consumer perspective, how does someone interface with Audius? How do I upload music? And then as a consumer, what does it mean to be a customer uh, of that uploaded music? So we see ourselves as being much more similar to SoundCloud, I would say, than Spotify. Okay. So taking a step back, Spotify doesn't let artists directly upload anything. They upload via distributors who then put it on this Spotify. I use TuneCore. TuneCore is my my service provider of choice. or Not even choice. I feel like uh, at the time I started using TuneCore, I'm not sure I was aware that there were TuneCore competitors even. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a whole ecosystem of these. There's TuneCore, DistroKid, um, many others. Spotify actually owns a, a piece of DistroKid as well. But anyhow, I would almost compare it to Netflix versus YouTube, Mm. right? Netflix is professional content uh, distributed via these sort of well-established rails, whereas YouTube is like anyone can show up, upload whatever they want. And that's the kind of divide that's emerged on the audio DSP side as well. But much of the industry driven by Spotify largely is shifting towards the a more professional model, there's not really a space anymore for folks who want to either you know do things like share half-finished things, get feedback from their fans and from the greater artists and music community. SoundCloud used to fulfill that role to some extent, but they've fallen on some hard times and, and happy to get into that more as well. But we feel that by doing this in a decentralized way, we can create a permanent home for this type of music that can't go away or fall prey to you know business model issues in the way that SoundCloud did and copyright issues and and many other things. So that's that's how I would kind of characterize it. And like if I upload a song, someone can say like go on the web and listen to it. This isn't going to require you run like a like uh, Ethereum node in order to be able to listen to a song or something like that. That's exactly right. We feel like so many crypto products today are really just frankly hard to use. It shouldn't take, you know, installing a Chrome extension, getting a wallet seed, writing it down, putting in your safety deposit box, and then signing up for a service to be able to play a song, right? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, that's a lot of the work that we had to do was really innovating on that onboarding experience and then just the general user experience of of using Audius. So there are a number of things that we've kind of done around that to enable us to have users sign up with just a username and password. And using that, we secure, essentially secure a wallet that we generate on the client's machine and save an encrypted version of that to a server we operate. So that if you sign in on other devices, your device can pull down that encrypted wallet, decrypt it locally, and then access the same account. So from a user perspective, Audius looks and feels just like any other music player. The difference here from that consumer side is that you get to see a catalog and a have a kind of interaction model that you don't get with existing uh, products just because, it, you know, you sharing your podcast on Spotify, do you have any of insight or relationship with the folks who are listening to your content? No. And I would sort of argue that like the content, the audio content that I have created for the web uh, lives in three, uh, in three different shades of gray, right? So there's the like totally, totally free podcasts, right? I distribute podcasts through Apple Similarly, it's not actually directly through Apple. I use a Simplecast, which is a podcast host, which creates an RSS feed. Apple ingests that RSS feed. But the resulting product is a free, basically unrestricted piece of audio. And then that content is mirrored on Spotify. And that's simply, for me, a choice that I don't really want to not be there where anyone might want to listen. Like, if somehow Spotify does win this podcast war. I'm like, all right, fine. Like, like as long as you listen to my shows, that's, that's what my business is, is you listening to my shows. And as, as far as I understand, our analytics are pinged by those Spotify plays, but you're correct in that we have none of the 
insights uh, that you get uh, in some of these more open platforms. And then the third realm of, of content I, I'm involved in is music. I have like recorded some of my own music. I write songs with a band called Francis and the Lights. And that music is purely on Spotify and is not available on the, the open web. Actually, that's not really true. I think there's like YouTube uploads of most of it. But for argument's mm-hmm. sake, let's say that that music is paywalled and it's professionally published. It's owned by multiple people. There are uh, various legal structures that uh, already dictate its use. So my understanding is that you are sort of focusing on those first two use, use cases, the totally free open market web and people who want to supplement their open web presence with distributing content to multiple outlets. Like if I had music on Audius, that doesn't mean I can't have it anywhere else, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Got and it. to your point, I think that's that's really the point here, right? Is music and, and audio content should be openly addressable and openly shared. Um, Regardless of whether you choose to monetize it or not, there should be open mechanisms for it to be ingested and consumed by other applications, right? It's kind of a question of like, should should the DSP, if you will, the digital service provider in audio parlance is basically a Spotify or SoundCloud or something, should that be vertically integrated or should it be in, in pieces, if you will, right? Should the distribution layer be separate from the consumption layer? And, and my distribution yeah. layer is actually TuneCore, which is interesting mm-hmm. because you get to the screen in TuneCore and you could actually tell me that Audius was already on this list of outlets because I don't ever look at it. I click the box that says distribute in all stores, right? Mm-hmm. In for a penny, in for a, a dollar. You know what I mean? It's like, it's the same price. And you do get weird royalties from like Deezer Australia, three cents. You know what I mean? So it's kind of yeah. like, why are you, you know, why shoot yourself in the foot or put yourself out of those catalogs? But the interesting things to me is always that none of the free catalogs are serviced uh, by TuneCore. So you can populate quickly in the paywalled web while there's no way to populate into places like SoundCloud except manually. Yeah, I think that's true. Although some distributors do let you upload to SoundCloud or YouTube or places yeah, like that. Yeah, I well. think what I said is actually dated now because there's also that like YouTube music service. And I think even if you do it, it still appears in regular YouTube, but like with an ad or something. Like everyone, everyone's encroached on this game and it's increasingly like the same catalog just mirrored at many, many different players. That's that's exactly it. Um, and that's really what motivated us to to build Audius as well, was to try to recreate that that user-generated catalog that used to be on SoundCloud, but has now kind of, you know, for the most part gone away, right? There were so many artists who used to upload, you know, half-baked, half-finished things to get feedback, to hear what people think of it to learn what to tweak and and change. And there's not really a a place for that anymore. Well, there's this interesting way that a lot of uh, modern music works. I will use uh, Old Town Road as the example, as it is the, I'm assuming, still the number one song in the world as we speak. Yep, it is. As of this week, it once again topped uh, the Hot 100. So Old Town Road by Lil Nas X is recorded over a beat he found on YouTube, which is a common way that kids make music today mm-hmm. uh, i think most people over here will be familiar with that it's not actually that hard to rip audio out of youtube and a lot of the people who are uploading beats will like include a link for the download and want you to license it whatever i don't know exactly how lil nas x found the beat but the beat has a sample of nine inch nails in it i can almost guarantee that that sample was not cleared when the song was uploaded to soundcloud and that's that like greater level of artistic freedom that is available when you're kind of semi gray area distributing things not for profit. There's a tremendous amount of SoundCloud material that has uncleared samples in it. Mm-hmm. And then when the song actually gets that critical velocity, well, at that point, it's worth like going to Nine Inch Nails and clearing the sample and doing the official release. And then it eventually appears in Spotify. But the result, at least in my opinion, and this is, I guess, one of the reasons I'm a. Uh, this being a crypto show, bullish on Audius, 
is I think that there's a tremendous power in being the place where the stuff arrives first, not where it's like later polished and put into the paid system. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And the case of Old Town Road is a fascinating one, too, because I, I think this is pretty reflective of how so many artists in the last few years have come up. Um, are, are you familiar with uh, Juice World at all? The I am, I am familiar with Juice World. Yeah, so um, his biggest track, arguably Lucid Dreams, had this sting guitar riff in it. Um, if you read into the story, it's, it's pretty interesting because it wasn't actually a sample um, and it's unclear whether whether or how that guitar riff made it into this track. It's kind of become this he said, she said thing. Uh, but now Sting captures something like over 80% of the revenue that that track generates. Um, and that was largely because this existing copyright regime, if you will, enables folks to monetize th- that type of derivative content in a way that's somewhat extortionate, we would argue at least. Um, with Audius, we, you know, one of the things we're really excited about is, you know, what comes with artist freedom and artist sovereignty is giving them the freedom to share and upload whatever they want, but to own the potentially own the responsibility for that too, right? We feel that as a company or operator, if you will, you should not have to dictate what types of content do and don't live there, which is what happens with Spotify and SoundCloud and YouTube today, but the law forces that upon them, right? And with Audius, we don't operate this. We're putting out tools and giving those away to the community to share what they want to share on on their own terms. And it's up to them to make decisions around what they want to share and and how they want to share it. I mean, in terms of applying the sort of anti-censorability of Bitcoin metaphorically to music, you actually do have these real life conflicts. Like at one point, Spotify, I believe, was going to pull uh, X uh, Tentacion's uh, songs, not from the service, but uh, out of out of bounds for any Spotify generated playlists, which you could say, like, who cares? They're a business like they can do whatever they want. The other side of that coin would be looking into the future of Spotify. The the future of what music will succeed economically within Spotify is going to be almost entirely uh, decided by Spotify playlists. So some of the same anti-censorship malleability of the catalog issues are sort of echoed between music and Bitcoin, which is basically this is the like most important point in my in my view of the design of Bitcoin is there's no wheeling back the chain. No one can edit it. You can't really ban it. It just continues to exist as its own autonomous organism. And we've really been inspired by that kind of ethos, if you will, that philosophy with Audius too. That's how we've designed the protocol such that our company could go away. We can turn off our AWS server. We can do whatever we want. And this thing will still continue to live on so long as there are artists who want to share content on it, right? It's a a really fascinating set of issues to unpack around of how music is shared today and curated and and all of that because i i agree with you right i don't think spotify should be in a position to get to dictate you know what gets featured and what doesn't you know this is just payola all over again right um you, you know we're replacing one cartel with a new one and yes it's it's better in some ways but still the same in in most of them we would argue at least right if you look at where all of the revenue in music is going. When you look at who controls discovery, all of these things, it it, it looks very centralized. And you know, we're going to kind of repeat the same mistakes that uh, history taught us, you know, or should have taught us not to. Right. So, in thinking about the arc of a project like this, and this is always interesting to me in any sort of a project that has a token or has a workforce of people working for you. You're burning money. People work for you for Audius. Like, what's kind of a timeline for something like this to succeed? How quickly does something like this need to take off? How long can it run as a niche uh, blockchain? This is cool in that world. Like, do you want it to break into the mainstream? Do you see 
uh, and is following crypto itself as mainstream's adoption? We see music being almost the most <laughs> mainstream use case you could go after. So yeah, we, we definitely want audience to break into the mainstream. The way we see ourselves doing that is by having a catalog that's differentiated. If we can distribute and give users access to music that they can't get access to anywhere else, we think that'll be a, a compelling reason to, to come try out Audius and, and check things out. So really the types of artists we've been going after are hip hop folks and EDM folks for the most part, where, you know, as you brought up earlier, they most acutely face these types of problems around sample clearance, around uh, getting featured, getting discovered, all of those types of things. But yeah, I think it's, it's really important to figure out how, as a crypto community in general, how we can make these products approachable and usable for folks who are non-technical, folks who don't already have a bunch of Bitcoin or, or have a bunch of Ethereum or, or what have you. Tell me about your own uh, crypto story. H how did you get interested in this stuff? Is this your first business foray or do you have other projects behind you? So I got into Bitcoin in 2012, 2013. I was studying distributed systems within computer science at Stanford. And I really was just fascinated by this idea of having this uncensorable thing that could be worked on and coordinated on by anyone, right? It was permissionless. And uh, I, I think that combination of things was really powerful and, and interesting to me. So I started mining at that time in my dorm room. And uh, How much of the mining hash of 2012 do we think was being operated from Stanford dorms? Seems like a significant <laughs> amount of mining was happening on the Stanford campus. It's a good question. So uh, my co-founder Forrest and I, who you know on Audius now, we actually got started mining that. And I, I know of at least 10 or 15 other people at that time who were mining as well. So we figured out there was a way to buy, at that time it was the AMD 7950, or, or I guess it was ATI at that time. Uh, that GPU was kind of the dominant force in altcoin mining. That's what we were mining. So we were mining Dogecoin, Litecoin, and other S-Crypt-based altcoins. So we found a way to buy those in Paris and get this VAT refund. And we could buy them for about half the price we could in the US. And Forrest was really fortunate that his dad was a pilot. So he could get free flights to and from Europe. And he would go and bring back some. And, and we could use those to mine. Um, but yeah, we actually... We used to trip the circuit breakers in our house frequently, and we actually ended up finding a way to sort of pick the lock for the circuit breakers so we could go turn them on ourselves. <laughs> there, was, there was a very substantial amount of, I mean, if you put together like the, the 10 to 20 of us who were doing this, was, we were probably consuming 30, 40, 50,000 watts of electricity somewhere thereabouts um, at peak. But yeah, I think that was still pretty small. I, I'm very interested in like the history of crypto culture. It's probably as like interesting to me as the technology itself. What was the Stanford Bitcoin scene circa 2012 like? What were people talking about? Like you're you're mining stuff like Doge and Litecoin. Like where did people think things were going then? Yeah, it's interesting to think about. This was seven years ago, so it's been a long time. I think a lifetime. We, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's one hundred years in crypto. It really is. Um, we were all just really. We just thought this technology was cool, and to be honest, you know, in late twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen, a bunch of us sold most of our crypto to fund a spring break vacation. So it was not like a. Have you calculated the present day? price of that vacation <laughs> we have probably it's probably like a okay i'm gonna predict is at least seven figures maybe eight figures yeah i think it was a, a seven figure amount so one of the most expensive if you look at the quality of our vacation certainly it was not a seven figure kind of vacation but anyhow where did you where uh, did you go 
We went to Honduras. Uh, we wow. did some you guys scuba diving and uh, over one million dollars to go to Honduras. If you had yeah. just held, <laughs> you probably could have bought an island in Honduras for that. <laughs> yeah, but we were, you know, we were like 20, 21 years old. We were like, hey, let's, you know, we've never had money before. Now we have a little bit of money. Let's let's go spend it and hang out. So that's what we did. I think most people at that time just thought the technology was cool, but didn't see this as a thing that could financially change their lives, right? We were just, we all just thought it was really cool. And that's actually what led to me working on my first company straight after school. It was a Bitcoin peer-to-peer payment product. I, we describe it as like Venmo for Bitcoin. So you could type in someone's phone number, someone's name and pay them some Bitcoin and uh, vice versa. You could receive Bitcoin via your social presence. But again, it was the same kind of thing. We just thought Bitcoin was really cool and we wanted to start paying each other for things with Bitcoin. So we built this thing to, to try to solve that use case. Turned out no one else wanted it, <laughs> but uh, it was a good learning experience. So that, that didn't take off at all? That's, that seems useful. We got to like 25,000 monthly active users at our peak. I mean, that might have been a lot of the people who were actually like moving any Bitcoin. It's easy to forget, like we think of the total number of people who own Bitcoin, but almost everyone is just not doing anything with their Bitcoin. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what we realized at that time too. So this was called uh, Backslash. It, it was uh, just a, a Bitcoin wallet product, right? And what we realized when we were talking to all of the folks who signed up and were using it, no one wanted to send their Bitcoin to anyone. They were trying to kind of you know, stacking sats, right? They were trying to just yeah. accumulate it to the extent that they could. So it was like, well, no one really, no one really actually cared about that use case. But we were spending a lot of time with the team at Coinbase at that time. So we were going to do this kind of white label thing with them. Uh, they, I think they ended up killing that product soon afterwards. But you know, they were in the hundreds of thousands of active users at the time. And that's what made us realize, okay, if, if a company with this level of resources and this many people working on it can only get to that kind of usage, there's not really enough here for a type of product like what we were doing. It's funny because it, it, it's actually pretty right on. Like, it's not a bad idea compared to like people who are like, I have an altcoin that's going to be used to like, move energy off the grid and it's like come on come on like th this is a practical idea with a real user experience but i have one suspicion about why people don't do this when i imagine myself like on your trip let's say to honduras everyone's settling up mm -hmm. i'd be like if you want to pay me in sats go for it great in fact i'd love if everyone wants to pay me back in like bitcoin that'd be awesome i like i love to like get a little bitcoin that i didn't have before if you're asking me, do I want to pay you back, and you give me the option between actual Venmo and Bitcoin, I'm like, ah, I don't really want to give up any of my Bitcoin. Like, there's that weird, you know, in a board game, people don't want to do a fair trade. They only want to do a trade yep. if it's like slightly <laughs> in their advantage. The trade of sending someone Bitcoin at least feels like at best a fair trade or like a slightly worse trade for you because you always have the feeling that Bitcoin is about to go up at least a little bit. That's absolutely right. And that's kind of what we saw that behavior emerge even amongst ourselves too. We, uh, you know, we were all very reluctant to, to send Bitcoin, but always wanted to receive it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. There's something to be said about just human set. Like a lot of yeah. Bitcoin's game theory has taught me not so much about Bitcoin itself, but just about how people hoard their pot of gold and like get very irrational as they like wrap their arms around it and look suspiciously around. No, that's absolutely right. The only times I think we we were actively sending Bitcoin to each other was when we had no, you know, money, no US dollars to send. It was like, oh well. Right. You know, near the end of that Honduras trip, we were kind of running out of money. <laughs> we had booked the flights back and stuff. So it was, that was all okay. But yeah, there was nothing else to send, right? Then we were forced to dip into that. Without prying into your current financial situation, which is your own business, does it ever bother you? I assume if you tell people 
you were into Bitcoin in 2012 and you were mining, they assume that you're like a mega whale, super, super rich. But actually, you put a lot of that money into going to Honduras and like living your life and starting companies and stuff like that. Like, does that disconnect ever come into play in your relationship with the company or Bitcoin or other people? I I don't think so. I, I actually, most of the folks I know in the crypto community have similar kinds of stories, you know, whether it was Mt. Gox or whether it was... sure. You know, I a lot was, of ways to lose your Bitcoin. Yeah, like, oh, I was CPU <laughs> mining at home and then I forgot about my Bitcoin, right? And that was in 2010 and now that would be worth like $10 million yeah. or, or whatever, right? Bitcoin is a vessel for tragedy. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> all the stories, if they go on long enough, are going to end in tragedy. There's going to be people who are like in three generations and they're like, I've still got my grandfather's Bitcoin. Oh, no, I lost it. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. There's going to be these stories about like lost and found fortunes are just going to like as the um, time period stretches longer and longer, they're just going to be crazier and crazier. Totally. Yeah. And I I think a funny one that happened to a bunch of us uh, like a year or two ago probably was when Stellar launched, they had this OAuth with Facebook and you would get an airdrop of some Stellar, right? So a bunch of us did it. And then promptly forgot about it, right? And I noticed during that run-up in late 2017, like, oh, Stellar's doing pretty well. I wonder how much of Stellar is in that old wallet. It turned out to be like seven or eight thousand dollars. I was like, oh, that's that's kind of a nice little gift <laughs> um, to just sort of discover randomly. But um, yeah, to your earlier point, you know, I, I think I've always kind of taken a Zen approach to these things, if you will. Like, I feel like I, I've got a roof over my head. I've got food in my stomach. I can travel where I need to travel and, and live by all intents and purposes, a great life. I'm not too concerned about like what could have been, should have been whatever, when it comes to uh, our historical experience in crypto, I just feel very fortunate to even get to work in this time and in this industry, right? I think we're in very interesting times in general. How many years into Audius are you now? So we're just over a year in. Uh, We got started early last year, like March of of 2018. So we're 12 people now kind of doing our thing. We were fortunate to be able to raise some capital soon after starting and things have been really good. We're launching a public beta in uh, September. So just been in building up our artist board and, and other things in preparation for that. Did you raise money by selling a token or something or just by like more of a VC kind of structure? We followed a, a fairly traditional venture style structure. Um, there's essentially a corporate entity that owns a pool of tokens. And at some point in the future, our company will you know either distribute those tokens and cease to exist or some other thing will will happen around that. We felt like that gave us a lot of flexibility to iterate on, you know, both the token model and and everything else without having to do so with public scrutiny, but we're pretty excited now about being able to open up what we've been working on and starting to actually go after larger numbers of of users. I feel like we've learned what we can in this private testing period. So you're venture-backed, which means the money you have is not from some shitcoin trader who, like, uh, you know, pumped your ICO. But you do have a token that is going to be used within Audius, or is it actually two tokens? Yes, it's it's two tokens. Although, you know, one, I should clarify, one of those is our native token or we call it kind of our, our governance token follows a traditional work token style model with a, a staking system around it. And then the actual transactional economy would be conducted in third party stable tokens. So we feel like you know we'd support any stable token that an artist wants to to be able to receive. But we didn't feel it would make sense for us to try to build our own transactional token. There are a lot of folks working on value stable, low volatility, whatever you want to call it, mediums of exchange that could apply really well in this use case. Are you are you open to Libra? Yeah, we uh, 
we actually think Libra is going to be net good for this whole crypto ecosystem. And there's a lot to unpack around that too, but uh, we're actually pretty excited by it. I'm actually, I'm, I'm a contrarian pro Libra thinker also, or at least I take it seriously. I, I don't yeah. think it's my place to be at for or against it, but I don't think it's irrelevant or a joke. Yeah. I mean, this is 2 billion people, right? Uh, yeah. You can't, you can't just disregard that. Um, not only that, I, I think if Facebook can do this right, or if, you know, what's called the Libra Foundation can do this right, they can actually enable interesting use cases around censorship resistance and, and other things. It's just too early to say. But I, I do think there's an opportunity there that could be really exciting. And we would be more than open to, to accepting Libra as well. You know, we, we kind of want to be agnostic, right, to any of these transactional mediums. Is Bitcoin an option also? I mean, um, yeah, we we certainly could support it. I think it's it would be like wrapped Bitcoin of some kind, right? Um, right I, I think right, the scripting right. the scripting system right. in Bitcoin's a bit too limiting and and whatnot yeah. for, for that to apply directly. But you know, yeah, I mean, it, to your point, I think it's kind of people should be able to pay in whatever currency they want, and people should be able to be paid out in whatever currency they want. And you can use zero x relayers and other things in the middle to make that work, right? If I want to pay and die and you want to be paid out in Libra, there should be a permissionless way to atomically swap and, and have you be paid out in a single transaction. Okay, I've got a question. So my friend Ledger Status, who comes on the show a lot, he's like a crypto Twitter trader kind of guy, but really great guy, really smart guy. And he started the, playing this uh, crypto game called Hero in beta, you're basically like shorting or longing like each candle using this game token. And he was playing it really early and basically built up to where he's like one of the biggest holders of that token. So I'm curious for artists who come into your system early, is there like a first actor advantage in so far as the catalog won't be very big and there will be some sort of amount of free floating tokens that tip heavily towards people who like go in on it early there will be I'm, yeah I'm, I'm not asking for myself but maybe i am asking for myself oh <laughs> <laughs> you know, there certainly will be and we i'm not good at sharding and logging bitcoin this is closer to my skill set <laughs> oh we would love to to have you in audience I'll, I'll follow up after this with uh some you know an invite and everything but yeah i, I think we certainly want to incentivize folks to come in early if you look at how previous content platforms have played out, it was the folks who were there earliest and you know understood how to build a following there, how to engage with users and, and all of that that ended up doing the best on those platforms. So there's that kind of soft incentive, but the harder incentives we want to create are around. We're going to have a bunch of incentive programs to directly incentivize early artists, you know, everything from you know, say the top 10 artists being listened to any given week or within any given genre or whatever could get paid out bonuses and other things. We're still figuring out from a legal standpoint how best to execute these types of things. So, you know, we haven't published a lot of detail yet around plans there. But to your point, yeah, we would definitely want anyone to feel incentivized to share content here, interact with their listeners, all of that, right? I think that's one of the most powerful things about these crypto protocols that you have essentially this currency flowing around within your system. You can use that to incentivize behavior, right? If you think about Dropbox's sign-up model, for example, right? If you referred five friends, you'd get like 100 megabytes more of space or things like that. I think they're really cool opportunities to explore those direct incentivization models around uh, crypto economic networks as well. Do you foresee that this token, not the token, not the necessarily what's being paid for the music, but the governance token, is that something that will like trade on exchanges at some point? At some point, it likely will. That's not something that our company will play a role in. Got it. It will need to be traded at some point in order for the the service provider economy to work. But from our perspective, the longer we can kind of not have it be traded, not have to worry about 
price and all these other things, the more time we have to build long-term value here, uh, the better. It seems like there's a divide in most, I, I come from a like product design user experience background. And there's basically these like, pay us a flat rate subscription. And then past that, what you do is basically irrelevant. We're just taking the money. And then sort of direct sales, like let me sell you an album, Bandcamp, like, you know, basically kind of on like a software, like pay for download model, basically. Are you on either side of that user experience or is your user experience something different than either of those things? Yeah, I would say we're on both sides of that in that we, we want to enable both types of models and artists can choose whether they want to participate in one or the other or both. But uh, from the protocol standpoint, we essentially support two ways of getting artists paid. One is a, every time you play a song, your client is making a small payment to the artist. The other is you pay a flat rate subscription, you get all you can eat listening. However, your listening behavior is logged on chain in a way that payments out can be done transparently, right? Versus the existing subscription models are typically these kind of black box things. So on the paper stream model, we actually envision there being a sort of free market around this, right? As an artist, you could say, I want to get paid X or Y per stream. And if you're below a certain threshold, maybe the client doesn't prompt a listener before they click play to opt into the payment. But you know, if you say, hey, I want $10 every time someone plays my track, maybe the listener does get prompted and the listener could choose. So the way we really see this is with every product decision we make, we make it from the perspective of enabling artists' choice. We want to give artists the power to make these decisions rather than forcing those decisions upon them. That makes sense. I mean, there may be emergent markets that don't even exist yet, like selling high-quality stems totally. of songs, uh, track separated. I mean, there's already in sort of an emerging economy in audio quality, but there's so many more dimensions of distribution. And I also kind of imagine the, like, something I've surprised there isn't more of a market for sometimes is the, like, flat rate, like, 20 bucks, everything forever. Everything I've, that's, I've ever put out and everything going into the future. You know what I mean? Like basically like a pass uh, for an artist because the models that people are publishing on now are so rapid that I think like something like Patreon, I think actually more closely follows like the fan experience for a lot of people. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what if that artist pass gave you other benefits? Like what if you could participate in a early feedback system with the artist, right? Maybe if you pay uh, $100 or $200, um, you get early access to content and get to give feedback or you get backstage passes when the artist visits your city. I think there are so many different avenues for monetization that artists haven't been able to explore today just because they don't own that relationship. If you, in in your band, for example, wanted to say, "Who, who are all the people who listen to us and who are the people who listen to us most? You, you couldn't answer that question, I, I imagine, given... You know, I, I actually know think you can look at that in Spotify, weirdly. And Spotify, like for all of its shortcomings, Spotify does do some somewhat interesting tracking that I'm sure is somewhat invasive of listeners, but like you can see it by city, like what like cities do like overperform, and you can look at like times of day... But you can't look at specific people, right? What if you wanted to give an offer to your super fans? There, there is some drill down. Like I remember, Chance did a show where the audience was made up of the like number one SoundCloud listeners, mm-hmm. maybe. But anyway, I always find the most interesting metric in Spotify is just when you can see someone's rank in the world. I mean, that's what's pretty wild is that they're not only really exposing your analytics, but they're publicly exposing what artists you do or do not outperform analytically. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. And then you can almost gamify those things too, right? If you Well, they are. I think they are yeah. pretty heavily gamified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
what would be interesting would be from like a like a data science perspective to see a graph of artists ranked including plays uh, generated directly from Spotify playlists and then totally exclude playlisting and re-rank. But then again, like the people who are heavily featured in playlists, you get like tail off subscription, like whatever. It's probably actually similar. Um, but it is hard to tell how much of that is sort of internal algorithm understanding of the artist in Spotify versus purely organic plays. Mm -hmm. Even being able to map from being featured in a playlist to you know, what outcome that has for the track, it's it's pretty hard to analyze these things today. One of the other frustrating things there, I think, is that a lot of those playlists kind of have this payola style model, right? Where either artists or labels are paying the curators of given playlists to feature their track. And that's because the folks who operate playlists don't actually get to monetize the fact that they curate content into this thing and people listen to it. So that's actually one of the other areas that is very near and dear to, to our hearts at Audius. We feel like if you command an audience in, in whatever way you do, you should have the opportunity to monetize that. So if you create a playlist in Audius, people are listening to content via your playlist, you actually earn a rev share on any of the listening that you're enabling. For a minute, I thought you were going to go like full crypto and be like, we wanted to create a more frictionless market for Paola. So we're having our own Paola token. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it should just be the best content wins. If someone wants to get paid for placements on their playlist, they can do that. But listeners uh, should naturally gravitate to the highest quality curation. I think it's just unfortunate that the situation we have today is people are forced to do this payola style thing because they can't make a living otherwise. Yeah, I mean, if there's one universal consistent in the record industry that extends to like from like sheet music through like future blockchain on the moon music industry, it's payola. Yeah. <laughs> Pale has never gone away. It's like always existed in different forms. People have always been like, finally, this new medium will stomp out Paola forever. And it always comes back. It's always quasi legal. Like, they did ban Paola in the 80s, but now they have like modern legal Paola. Yeah. And I think in the 80s, too, a lot of it was organized crime related. So I, I think part of the reason it was banned in the radio context was to hurt those folks, not necessarily because what was happening was illegal. And and don't get me wrong, I don't I'm not trying to make a moral argument for why we shouldn't be doing payola. I do think you should be able to see if payola is happening. There's a utility there. There's a reason why this happened, because it's just impossible to get heard between the noise. Um, I think where that becomes problematic is w when the only way to get heard amongst the noise is to participate in that. If your project succeeds beyond wildest belief, this is a thing we like to do on this show, which is basically just like when, when someone spins like a crypto narrative, you're like, okay, what if that like actually happens, you know, in the sense of like Bitcoin maximalism, we're living in a scorched earth and like all eating steak all the time. In the case of Audius, if this really succeeds, it becomes the Bitcoin to Spotify's Libra. And then it becomes a battle of is switching from that to a harder version worth it for the benefits. And to me in Bitcoin, it is like, I think Bitcoin is better than Libra. I think that like when people start thinking about Libra, it like exposes a lots of the qualities that Bitcoin has. Do you think that those qualities are like important enough in music to drive people from a centralized to a decentralized alternative? I do because there are just so many types of content that you can't really listen to easily today. And there are so many times I've seen like my favorite artists, for example, getting their content pulled, getting deplatformed, getting demonetized. And there are, there are many different reasons why that happens. So if to your hypothetical there in 10 years, if, if Audius is as successful as, as 
we'd like it to be or, or hope it could possibly be. I think what this looks like is a community-owned co-op where artists, listeners, these infrastructure service providers can all collaborate and work together on this shared thing, which is the world's music. So if, if there's an incentive amongst this community to curate the world's catalog of music, I could actually foresee a future where, for example, like Spotify pulls content from Audius as well. Like it, this is not like a closed off vertically integrated thing. This is a an open system for anyone to publish content and for anyone else to consume that published content. And we have a DAP that does that today, but our hope would be that anyone could and, and many other people will go build user experiences on, on top of it, targeted at specific use cases or at specific types of you know geographies, let's say, right? The, um, uh, the Chinese user might have different desires and or expectations than the Western American or Western European type of user, right? So, you know, that, that's what gets us really excited about this. If we've done our jobs right, our company should be able to disappear, go off into the wind. I think that would actually be the best thing for this protocol. If there were no authoritative central party that you know, was driving the product development, if this could be fully community driven. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the hope, man. So is there like, is there the possibility for like an incentive for people to build clients and things like that? Like I build like a killer iPhone client. Is there like a token incentive in the way that there's sort of these blockchain development funds for that kind of stuff? So we've explored or thought about grants, you know, incentive grants of uh, those governance tokens for folks who are building things that are are valuable to the protocol. I think there are also other forms of incentives, which are, so I, I mentioned at the protocol level, we support those two methods of payment, right? The subscription model and this paper stream. But at the client level, paper stream doesn't necessarily mean you know, a listener spending money. The client could show a listener an ad every so often and make those on-chain payments on behalf of the listener, where essentially you are earning a little bit of crypto for seeing an ad, your client spends down that crypto, and then you see another ad and you, you know, earn a little bit more. But the client could actually earn a spread on that, right? If their ad revenue... No, this is, is starting to get dystopian. <laughs> anytime so? people start getting i don't know it kind of reminds me of those like coinbase you'll learn at Khan academy and earn zero x by learning about zero x uh it just like the ads for token to pay for the service just i don't know it, it goes black mirror quickly for me maybe i'm just too squeamish i, I don't know we see it just as a, a simple way to get people onboarded uh-huh. You know, you you mentioned that you pay for Spotify, right? Yeah. You know, you probably started out listening to ads and then you you get annoyed, right? You're like, screw this. I don't want to hear ads when I'm trying to listen to music, so I'll, I'll pay. But that ad supported at the beginning is very important, right? Because if you just showed up and Spotify said, you know, pay us $9.99, right. start using this thing, you'd be like, eh, you know, I don't... I don't really know how this is useful to me yet, right? Let's let's try it out and see. Were you were you were you a BitTorrent person? Uh, I was. Like, uh, was torrenting <laughs> a part of your life? Okay. Did you were you a member of like private music music trackers at all? Yeah. So I I was part of Oink and What.CD, um, all of those, and and that was okay. really what we're, we're speaking the same language. That was really what enabled me to discover my love for music. Um, and that, that's what was so exciting to, to Forrest and I about Audius too, was that we had this chance to combine two of our biggest interests in, in a single project. But we, we've been inspired by a lot of what they did around, I don't know if you remember the bounty economies that, that they had, right? yes. where, yeah, it was just this fascinating model. And, and look, don't get me wrong. I, I don't, I, Audius is not does not exist to enable piracy or, or promote piracy, but I think in that era, like in the mid two thousands, that really served a utility for those of us who were you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old. We didn't have a way to discover music. We couldn't. Af- I couldn't afford to go down to the record store and and pay twenty five bucks for every album. 
So I, I found different ways to support my artists. I'd go to live shows and things like that. But I mean, I was 25 at the time. I don't have the same excuses. I just wanted it because it was, it was the best music service ever built. The catalog of Oink at the time is the greatest collection, most perfectly labeled, most comprehensive, perfect quality, flack releases mm-hmm. of everything. And I'm glad they I'm glad to hear that that was an inspiration for what you're doing because I have always thought that like the end state of a crypto based music service would look something like oink. I don't actually think piracy is a huge part of the oink story. To me, when I think of it as like a piece of system design, for starters, you're you're given a little bit of seed to begin with. And then you need to upload as much as you download, which forces you to get creative and contribute to the community, either by uploading music that wasn't previously available or just by serving as a seeder so other people can can benefit. I think you could also earn credit for like cleaning up listings mm-hmm. and like moderating forums and that kind of thing. Like the idea of a co-op is basically right. I wonder what what ways other than watching ads people can perform like playlisting is one of the ones you brought up services so that basically if you want to put in a little work it's free otherwise like a lot of people are going to you know unlock just like I don't want to deal with it and just pay for it the cool thing about oink was that you couldn't pay for it like you had to be a good seeder you actually had to be a good member of the community the only people who were active mm-hmm. in the community really could take advantage of it otherwise you got ratioed and they'd uh mm-hmm. turn you off i remember the day i got ratioed on oink i was like no <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i did too i got warned many times as well it was, it, it was really hard right it was actually really hard to maintain a ratio because everyone was very hard fighting so hard to maintain their ratio so you know, I, I had I, bad internet at the time too, and people. I was like, oh, some yeah. people were like, "Oh, got a bunch of kids in Stanford dorms on T lines here." I'm like on this <laughs> crappy Time Warner cable, and they're crushing me in the ratio. That's basically mining. Like mm-hmm. all of that seeding is basically competitive mining because it's just like looking for the fastest nodes, isn't it? I don't actually really know how BitTorrent works, to be honest, but it always has been a pretty good metaphor for mining to me. I, I think it really is. It, it's philosophically aligned with what mining was meant to be early on, which was that anyone yes. could show up and join it. And now mining has centralized, right, in a way that I think is somewhat antithetical to the ethos behind these systems. But anyhow, yeah, one of the other, you know, really cool things we've been able to explore is like with Audius, once you've listened to a track, that content's now on your computer, right? So your computer can mm. go around and go distribute that, redistribute that to more people. And that's that's what enables us to be able to scale this in a way that wouldn't otherwise be possible with decentralized infrastructure, right? In a way, the more people listen to a thing, the more replicated it becomes and the more available it becomes on uh, IPFS, which is our, our content distribution layer that that we use. So I think I think you're about... 10 years younger than me, I'm going to guess, or like seven or eight years younger than me. I'm 26. Okay. Uh, make that 11 years younger than me. <laughs> so when I was in college, taking it back, this is before even the Oink era. This was like the like like post-Napster, everyone's coming out with uh, like peer-to-peer clients era. And a lot of these peer-to-peer clients would allow you to form like a LAN, a local area network, like within the dorm and just grab any music from it. So the very first like crazy free for alls in music I was exposed to, even before like that Oink era, was people just had like these network parties in dorms where there was like terabytes of music moving around, and it was super fast because it wasn't actually like going anywhere. Oh, that's super cool. So I I do remember when I started college, Spotify, etc., were not not a thing in the States yet, right? I think Spotify had just started in uh, Northern Europe and whatnot. So what we did do was everyone would share their iTunes library. So have you ever seen this on on iTunes? You could essentially browse other people's libraries on the local network. Oh, yeah. That's how these services worked. That's how the thing in the dorm worked. 
it the software it wasn't Kazaa, it was like a Kazaa-ish thing, but they got popular in dorms. It knew because everyone was on an Apple computer where to look for your iTunes library, and it would oh, automatically cool. index your iTunes library into the local area network of everyone, and you couldn't see whose computer it was on. It just had a search function and a filter function, and it was just a giant set of files sitting there on the local area network. A lot of security concerns there, but different yeah. times, different times. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> hey, if you're getting into peer-to-peer, hey, anything could happen. Yeah, and I, I think that's it's really that ethos that we want to get back to. A lot of platforms today have kind of depersonalized music. You know, there's very little of a social layer remaining on, on Spotify at this point, you know, SoundCloud did, did do pretty well with this, but you know, for other reasons, I think they've been losing their, their audience. I would love to be able to see, for example, what you're listening to and sharing and be able to discover it and be able to see who, who has similar music tastes to me and what are they listening to and why are they listening to it? And, and all of that good stuff. It's just frustrating, right? Yeah, I came up in the same era you did <laughs> around that. You yeah. Know? Well, is it possible for you to eventually ingest, like, for instance, every podcast I've ever done, I run three podcasts. Uh, the biggest one is long-form podcast. We're over 300 episodes now. They're all just sitting out there on the internet. They're basically a giant RSS feed of MP3 files. Is it possible that something like Audius would eventually want to ingest all these freely available podcasts and then like make them available in the system and then hold whatever they earn in some sort of like an escrow waiting for someone to like sign in and claim them as their like content? Yeah, I, I think that's very possible. I think that would be a great use case uh, or model for this where it doesn't have to be us either. Anyone in the community could decide, right. hey, I, you know, I want more podcasts to be available on Audius. Let's, you know, let's right. go find content and put it here. So yeah, I, I think those kinds of models are really exciting. You could even create, a, you know, you could imagine having a bounty-based system around what you described for cleaning up tags to make sure that the correct person is attributed or correct people are attributed for a given piece of content such that, you know, perhaps anyone could upload a given thing, but the network could figure out who deserves to be paid out for it and and gets them paid out. And then people could challenge that and whatnot as well. But that gets into, um, we're, we're building out this arbitration system within Audius to help kind of moderate content in a community-driven and transparent way to make sure that the right people are getting paid out for uh, their content, right? If you go upload the Rolling Stones discography or, or something to Audius, there needs to be a way for the you know, rights holders of that content to, to come on and say, hey, that's, that's actually ours and we deserve to get paid for that, not Aaron, right? Right. And there probably should be some sort of a safeguard in the system for gray area content, which is to say like, hey, you uploaded this work that's not yours we're not going to like take it down it's like some sort of a collage or something but you can't uh monetize it because it's like not your intellect it's someone else's intellectual property like there is that weird zone of a lot of youtube stuff which is basically like not for profit piracy that i feel like is generally tolerated on like things that are old enough or outside of the purview of anyone looking yeah i think in that case we actually would want to enable a rev share structure where ah, I see. you know right right now if you let's say you go you know do what Kygo did recently if you go sample Whitney Houston and, and make a track but you don't clear it by her estate or or what have you there should be a mechanism for her estate to say hey you know Aaron's track is derived from our track and we deserve a revenue share on it but have the community decide what would be a fair revenue share there. Right now, the the ability to take down that content is used to extort kind of unreasonable rev shares, right? Like Sting getting over 80% of uh, Lucid Dreams revenue. That's one of the things we're really excited about is when you can resolve these disputes in an open, transparent, and cheap way rather than 
by throwing a bunch of lawyers into a room and, and seeing what happens, basically, which is how it's done today. We think you know a lot of creativity can be unlocked. Excellent. Well, when can people expect Audius to be something they can play with and check out? Yeah, so we're going to be launching uh, beta in the fall, so you know, late late September, early October timeframe. So, yeah, follow us on on Twitter, on um, whatever social platform you prefer. We're on Instagram, Discord, etc. If you want to get involved, you know, we're always looking for artists to give us feedback, and you know, there are plenty of other ways to participate. We're, we're just really excited to get this out to the world. It, it's been a lot of engineering effort to get to where we are today, but uh, we're here <laughs> and we're finally going to have our coming out party soon. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much um, for doing this interview. This was really interesting and uh, I look forward to uh, taking it for a spin. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Tuesday, July 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $12,542. And that was Coin Talk. We are brought to you in partnership with Medium. You can find all of our episodes at medium.com slash cointalk. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to our editor, James Nicholson. Thanks to my co-host, Jay Kang. If you want to send us an email, it's hi, H-I, at cointalk.show. I think, I think, I know I said this before and didn't do it. I think... We're going to do a mailbag show this month. So send us some mailbag questions. We've got some good Libra-related mailbag questions. I just got one, actually. I don't even know if it's a good question. It just made me angry, which made me want to respond. So if you want to just say something that I'll respond angrily to, again, hi at cointalk.show or just tweet it at us, whatever. See you next week. Bitcoin.